0: Everybody, welcome back to Hey Hey Agave, a podcast brought to you by Tuyo NYC. I'm Sabrina, your host, and today we are bringing you Durango Part Two with Tess Rose Lampert. In this episode, Tess talks more about the mezcal industry in Durango, what she learned, were the obstacles in getting the CRM to certify Durango as a mezcal-producing state, which was really difficult, and the current practices that are threatening the land and the natural resources. We talk about the different terrain in Durango and the inherent terroir in the expressions that are produced from the land. She talks about the other vinatas that she visited, and she also discusses a CBD-infused mezcal that she tried, which was pretty interesting to hear about. So without further ado, this is Tess Rose Lampert in Durango Part 2. Hey. Hey. Agave. Welcome back, Tess. Um <laughs> <laughs> We can call this Durango Trip Part 2, perhaps. Um, so why don't you start telling us a little bit about what we were just talking about off mic um, with Casa Cortez.
1: Yeah, so I think it's really important not to just gloss over the fact that we have this relationship between Origen Raíz, which I'm sure is a lot of people's first introduction to Durango Mezcal and Casa Cortez. And Casa Cortez... Um, if you're not familiar, they're the ones behind Casa Cortez, but also Nuestra Soledad and El Colgorio. So these guys have really set up nicely um, a structure of different levels of engagement with mezcal. So we've got entry-level, kind of premium or mid-premium, mid, mid premium, and then ultra-premium. And what they're doing is working with a number of different producers in the best possible way they're really going out and forming these relationships these family-like relationships which in some cases go back generations to offer a variety of terroir of mezcal expressions um and i think that if you're listening to this and you don't already know who Assis cortez is then you do now um and he's, he's a really interesting figure who has Mezcal on both sides of his family for generations. There's really interesting backstory there um, and has done a lot for the international community to introduce people to Mezcal. And I know for a fact that um, Lágrimas de Dolores, Germán, says that Assis as well as Graciela uh, from Real Minero were his two... Um, basically inspirations and mentors when he was getting into mezcal and whereas Graciela was more of the the biology nerd um really introduced him to what mezcal is all about and how to interact with it so this that's no light thing that's a that's a huge yeah 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 that's
0: a real mentorship and and um passion
2: you were mentioning the different levels and of premium and ultra premium and uh, but one one of the very first impressions that I have personal with Holgorio was that they carry an extensive portfolio of expressions. Uh, not many brands can. And the the fact that you say that they have these links as family members or family-like relationships, it makes total sense because you can only trust so much to get this exquisite exquisite uh, uh, unique expressions that you don't, you don't see many other brands having that big of a portfolio. I think, I think they're the only, not the only ones. Bago has, has a pre-extended portfolio, but Holgoria is typically the ones that you see top shelf in one of like in most of the, the Mezcal uh, bars in New York, at least.
1: I think all over the world, from what I've experienced, whenever I'm talking about Mezcal people, it's usually, you know, three comments in where someone's going to mention jolgorio. um And that's good. Colgorio is very delicious. If you're listening to this and you don't know what mezcal el colgorio is, go out and buy yourself a bottle. They, they have, have the
2: base label. The, the labels it, are beautiful amazing.
1: Beautiful labels. Also, just the juice is delicious. You know, espadín. Go for the espadín. Treat yourself. Mexicano. Tepestate. Tobasiche.
0: What else uh, about the... The CRM um, for the Denomination of Origin Authentication.
1: Yeah, so speaking of the Oaxaca-Durango connection, maybe you know we don't understand why. I, I certainly didn't. I just took it for granted. Well, Mezcal comes from Oaxaca, and that's where it's from. And most of the Mezcal industry is in Oaxaca. And there is some truth to that in some ways. Again, biodiversity industry, maybe number of people making it. But also, there were a lot of growing pains for the CRM, which is the Consejo Regulador de Mezcal, the um, regulating council for Mezcal. So they're the people that certify and basically manage the denomination of origin. And unsurprisingly, they have had a lot of internal corruption, and it's gotten better under the current president and without getting too deep into those politics i will just say that there were certainly a lot of growing pains when it comes to certifying other states and i'm not even talking about the recent controversy of adding states to the denomination of origin which is a whole other conversation because there are a limited number of states in mexico that have the denomination of
0: origin however most every state in Mexico produces some form of a
1: mezcal. Right, so currently it's nine states and then for about a week it
2: was 12 and it's gone back to nine. And is, when, when we talk about states, you will imagine like if you were talking in, in, in the United States, you talk about, you know, Pennsylvania, you talk Delaware, you talk uh, New York, but in Mexico is not the state itself covered. There are areas and regions inside the state that are the ones that are that like maybe up New York like up north New York and the south of New York they're they're not all covered at the same time they have to go through a very uh regulated and and difficult process of justifying why they should be part of the state regulation for the nomination of origin so
1: what I'm n- saying is, like, simple. it's not.
2: It's when when we say, "Oh, the state of Oaxaca," not necessarily, is the area of Sola Sola de Vega, the area de Matlatlan. the area, Like, they're very specific townships that they're allowed to be recognized as the nomination of origin.
1: Which makes it even more complicated. Yeah. So when we're looking at Durango specifically, where we have these areas that do have a history of mezcal production are producing in accordance with the denomination of origin. And really, the only missing piece was to be certified by the CRM. And what happened is they struggled for, I'm going to say, a few years to get someone from the CRM to come up and certify. Physically. Physically. So they would ask the CRM to send someone, a certifier, to visit the Vinatas to certify the mezcal put the label on it so that they could export it as mezcal and this was a really difficult task and this was a big roadblock for a lot of the producers in Durango and even now they finally managed to get someone dedicated to Durango but it's still there's still no one there all of the certifiers are still based in Oaxaca which is problematic
2: you're talking Oaxaca is down south and Durango is up north almost at the border, like you have one state away.
0: And it also speaks to the topic that we're not going to get into in, in this, this podcast, but we will in the future. I I promise you. Um, The question around, you know, if Durango is set up in a position where they actually have investment flowing, but yet they still can't get a person from the CRM to be designated for the state, I mean, that's saying a lot right
1: there. It is. And, and to my understanding, there is someone now that's designated to the state, but they're not, they're not based in Durango. So if we're talking about going to a remote area that's a three-hour drive, then how often is that person getting there? And so some of these more remote places, which we all want to try that mezcal, and we have people that do have the investment time, energy, and money to bring that to us, but they are waiting around for someone to come certify them. Um, and, and things are moving in the right direction, and that's why I do say they're growing pains. Because I think ultimately, we, everyone has the same common goal, but how we're getting there sometimes doesn't seem like the most efficient route.
0: And how would you compare that aspect of the CRM with
1: the um, SOTOL, the Appellation of Origin for SOTOL? So yeah, let's make that distinction. Sotol is, you know, we know that the plant is a little bit different. It's not an agave. It's related to the agave. Um, and after tasting roasted sotol, I get it a little bit more. It's cool. You could taste the difference. Yeah, you can taste the difference. You can, you can see the difference when you're looking at the plants in the ground and certainly in the quiotes, But even when you see them as roasted piñas, they're very different and the flavor is different. Um, so, Sotol has its own designated denomination of origin, and um, what I've seen—I haven't seen a whole lot of Sotol production firsthand, but what I have seen is pretty interesting. Um, it seems like it's a lot more uh, experimental and put together. In, I don't—I don't, I don't want to say this in a derogatory way, but. sometimes the way that the stills are constructed for sotol is a little bit more like um, salvaged materials kind of cobbled together (laughs) it it speaks to the resourcefulness of the Mm -hmm. people if anything
2: sotol is also from farther up like you have it in durango but it's it's sonora and sonora is deep mexican desert so your resources are counted
1: (laughs) exactly that's an interesting Idea. You know, the
2: yeah. more we talk about the the topographies of different places, and you know, you go south and you have this luscious green, almost jungly type uh, topography. You have the mountains in Oaxaca. You have you know the valleys down on in Puebla and Guerrero. Like it's, it becomes a very interesting thing to see that the the complexity of the topography yes changes the flavor, but also some of the procedures. Of how they will do the fermentation, how do they choose to do their uh, maceration? Like it's, it's a very interesting thing that I think is cultural to the the, the areas. And talking Sotol, talking Durango, you're up north, and is 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 is. It is as classic to hear. The, 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 the towns in Oaxaca, that their, the, the, their palenques are simple. Mm-hmm. And then you were talking to us uh, off mic about you know this more luscious, more put together haciendas, to say it some way, that the, only, the production is not just agave. They have their, their bigger production and agave becomes part of a, 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 not a secondary, but a second line of business.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and you do see that reflected in the Vinatas, whether they're constructed with, you know, very little resources in the middle of nowhere, or if it's just outside of town um, and, you know, no expense is spared. We still see the traditional elements, uh, for instance, in the top of the still is almost always wood. It's made out, I think they call it like a wood hat. Um, which is really interesting. And, you know, one of the things that I think you'll notice when you start drinking the mezcals from the north is they're less smoky, which if you love a lot of mezcal is probably a good thing to you, Um, right? We don't want something that tastes so much like the process. We want something that tastes like the plant. And wood, of course, is going to absorb flavor. So it's going to absorb some of that smoke um so it's interesting to see see how things are affected by the natural resources of the land in every step of the process.
0: And so that being said because these agaves are resources of the land, um what can you tell us about what a potential threat is in Durango at the moment?
1: So the biggest threat that's happening right now and like a lot of other things in the agave industry it's a little bit of a waiting game. And I know that a lot of us, I know, you know, the three of us right now included, we are constantly asking people, what can we do about this? How do we help? But the biggest threat right now is people coming from Jalisco to buy up agaves to use in tequila production, or even agave nectar production. And the worst thing about it is there's no respect for the the land or the natural resource people are harvesting plants that are too young um they're they're taking really rare precious agaves and just throwing them into diffusers for tequila so we're talking about plants other than the blue agave weber yes exactly which you know that might be because you think tequila and you think
0: it's only one type of agave we're
1: gonna
2: say straight on it's illegal
1: yeah, it's illegal. It's outside of the denomination of origin for tequila, and you know that doesn't bother me so much. It, it honestly, it'd be kind of cool if someone was making tequila out of other agaves, um, and even calling it whatever else they wanted. But the fact that there's just a blatant disrespect for the natural resources, and that it's so bad that it's posing a threat um, to the the industry in Durango, is is scary and. Unfortunately, you know, I don't have the visibility to do anything about that. I can write an article about it, and I think honestly, I'd just be putting myself kind of at risk as someone who travels throughout Mexico. I don't, you know, but if someone that had a really large platform, uh, journalist celebrity I don't know if those exist but (laughs) someone who (laughs) I got so much to say about that but I won't someone who could really get the word out to a lot of people with a documentary or a photo essay something like that I think that's one of the thoughts that's happening now so if anyone's a famous journalist and interested in a kind of dangerous very noble project um, have an opportunity for you if you're out there we are talking to you so you know, someone like that to break this story in in this way, I think would maybe calm things down. But um, it this is a this is a real problem.
2: You know, we we are in a very 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 specific time in Mexico. Uh, elections happen. There's a new president. Things are moving in a much different way from the past seventy eighty years. Uh, hopefully. There will be a a change of heart of what culture in my country is. And it will be a change of mentality to protect and not abuse. To use and not disrespect and be culturally and, and, and embrace this amazing culture that we have. Not money, not mezcal, not tequila. The culture itself is such much broader than just the liquids that are coming out of this. But it's it's, it's such a very stressful situation because, you know, it's all about the cents and the dollars. Yes, tequila is a much, much bigger business worldwide, period. I think there's some crazy numbers about being like one of the most selled liquor in the world. So therefore, yes, it needs a bigger production. But therefore, maybe there should be more plantations. There should be more nurseries. There should be something more dedicated and maybe expanding the denomination of origin so the blue weber can be planted in a bigger way. No, it's something that it has to adapt and it has to evolve. The denomination of origin was very important to protect it in their beginnings, but it has to be, it has to be some changes on evolution, and necessities.
1: Well, it's quite literally been watered down. So given, I, I feel like we're we're basically hitting rock bottom with tequila. And and that's not to say there's not great tequilas out there. There exactly. and are.
0: I, and I think it's really important. Maybe we'll do an, a, another episode with you because I know you're extremely knowledgeable about tequila specifically, um, about tequila, because... Tequila isn't an, an amazing distillate in and of itself. Um
2: You opened the door. Yeah. to all this. Like mezcal was not by far a premium liquor. Yeah,
0: I just don't want to shit on tequila because I right. I don't think that that's why what no, our intention is in this conversation. Um although it might sound like it, but just like with anything that blows up, you it's know. The
2: abuse. What right. what we're trying to expose is the abuse of resources in not a good way.
1: Right. And, and even worse, if it's in the name of tequila, which has its own culture.
0: Yeah, but the ecology and the efficacy of what's happening is, is predominantly what motivated us to start this podcast in the first place, right? That what brings the three of us together. And so, you know, it's something that we're just going to continuously be talking about because it's relevant, you know, and, and we certainly care. What our, how, our, how our contributions um, in, in stateside affect what's going on down there.
2: I think that the best way to contribute here is do your research. When you buy a bottle, know who it is, know where it comes from. Try to do, you know, it takes five seconds to put the name in Google. Most of these people have fairly decent and important information. Read it. Is not that complicated, but not knowing what you're buying and supporting something that by not knowing is supporting something else, that's when it gets complicated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's like, um, you know, know, know know the story, know the origin, try to figure out as much as you can. We're going to try to help out with that for sure. Like that's part of our mission here. Um, so definitely, I think that's that's just a, a mantra for, for, for what we're trying to do. Um, one thing that I did want to ask you, which is a little off topic, but I think that we can fit it in, is you were mentioning earlier about the quixote coming up, and you were saying something really fascinating about the quixote being cut versus an animal kind of
1: yeah making it its dinner so this is something that i had never considered before and we were walking around um in Durango and looking at these different agaves that had had their quiotes uh stopped and one of the things that was explained to us and it sounds really cool and i will just preface this by saying if someone out there is like a scientist and is like this is incorrect then you know educate us um uh, but this is this is what i was told and how i understand it yeah but i mean it makes sense um so there to make to make a spirit out of an agave you have to cut off the flowering stalk as it comes up because that is its reproductive organ that's where all of its energy will go the energy of course is potential sugar so we need to keep the sugar in the heart of the agave in order to harvest the heart and turn it into a spirit so when the plant sets up its flowering stalk, we cut it off. Um, the other way that this could happen is in the wild. And an animal could eat it because, again, it's full of sugar. And when you're in the desert and you're an animal, that juicy sugar stalk is looking pretty tasty. So when an animal does it, which is really doing the work of the human, very nice of you animal, Um it said that it makes a better spirit. That agave is going to produce a piña that's going to be better for mezcal. And that's because when you cut it off with a machete uh, or an axe, that metal will oxidize the part of the plant that was cut off. And the plant will use some of its own natural resources in the form of energy and sugar to kind of coagulate that, to heal that wound and to stop any foreign properties or oxidation from getting into the heart of the plant whereas if an animal does it it doesn't need to produce those same enzymes to counteract that contact with metal because it's all like gnarly chewed up or something yeah just because I, I guess it was like a reaction with the metal specifically interesting rather than and I like I guess if you think about like taking a plant and cutting it with a knife versus taking a bite out of it sure. and how that section might react to it and again i'm not a scientist i don't know the real answer but the the folk knowledge is that if an animal does it the plant doesn't have to work as hard to protect itself from that foreign assault essentially so the the piña will end up with more sugar and make an even richer mezcal it
2: kind of makes a little sense when like like if you have a distillation in copper or you have a distillation in clay. I think, at least on my experience, the copper distillation is almost more creamy and oily. And when you taste something that is a distillation in some kind of metal, mostly copper, it has a bite. It has a. Wait,
0: did you mean you meant clay? Clay you is clay. creamier. You clay is creamier. Yeah. You said yes. you said metal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was sorry, I was sorry. about to clay. disagree
2: with you. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, clay, yeah. clay, cream that's yeah. what I'm trying to okay. say. Sorry, <laughs> mistake. Okay. Uh, but yes, clay, clay has always been my favorite because of that, and is 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 you notice it like if you're doing that, like a little tasting with simple uh, espadine, and you happen to find one that is distilling in clay, right.
0: It's hold on to that such a different well, thing. well just to bring it all home coming from a perspective of clay bodies ceramics you know it is important to say that like um whether they it's fermenting distilling distilling twice in clay however it goes those clay pots are really fragile and very temperamental um they're very large they're made in a very specific way and they don't last very long so when you're buying an expression that maybe was distilled in clay you might see it at a higher price point because it yields less um just by the nature of you know the the vessel itself um kind of um sucking in some of some of the spirit that that comes out of it not a ton but that's part of it but also it's very it's very um expensive to keep that system running because of the the nature of the clay and, and how it behaves with heat over the long term. Whereas metal is metal, you know, it'll last a really long time. It's a good investment. It gives you a
2: different kind of a product. You were mentioning uh, that some of these binatas were put together kind of like makeshift. Mm-hmm. It has it. It has also his value. You know, it's, it's one of those things that tasting something that it was made out of like bamboo pipes and mm-hmm. cut uh, i don't know yeah it's like it's like and...
0: collaged together by the artisan that's i that's... don't know
2: i have to repeat it. i'm a romantic, for you all are romantic. This, like all this like the more complex and uh makeshift and and human resources from the land that it casts on the process i think but for me it's my favorites
0: but that makes you a really great advocate for the spirit
2: yes. itself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think there's room for both. You know, it's it's good to have people on, on both of those sides so we find the balance. Absolutely. Talk to us a little bit about Boscal. So Boscal, I have to say, this, this place was really cool. It It's an urban vinata. So similar to some of the urban distilleries or urban wineries we have here in New York which is cool. I just have to say that was really cute. You guys just took a sip at the same time Um, for our listeners who can't see. Uh, And so being in this kind of urban setting and just seeing that, they have like this kind of hip edge to them and their design. And it was just cool to see that because it struck me as very contemporary. And um, I think I tried the most surprising spirit there i'm really excited about it and i think that we're probably quite a ways from having it in the states but i also think that it will get here and this was a special uh, especial mezcal which was made with cbd and it was i didn't know what it was and i you know we were just over by the lab and someone just handed me a glass and i smelled it and i was like oh i know this smell um And I tasted it and had this beautiful kind of cannabis mezcal flavor. And it was really, it was perfectly clear, which is the first time I had seen any infused, um, you know, any marijuana-infused mezcal that was clear. I've seen a couple of them that are green. This one was perfectly clear. And he explained a little bit, um, Alan, the, the binatero, and he said, well, first and foremost, it's a proprietary recipe. But as far as I understood, it was a little secretive and, you know, I think on purpose. But it, it was infused but also distilled together. Mm. So that's cool. Um, like a little
2: bit of a pechuga.
1: It's a pachuga, yeah. And then he said, you know, he's working on it to perfect it. And um, it, it was in, he showed us that if he added water to it, it would go opaque. So that was really That's cool an interesting too. Interesting chemical yeah. issue, right there, huh? And it's
2: good to know. So
1: he couldn't water it; it couldn't water it down. <laughs> oh, he couldn't adjust the. So
2: only puntas and colas.
1: Right, so it was this really interesting product from, you know, just a distillation point of view, from a flavor point of view, and then also from a feeling point of view. Um, I would consider myself something of an expert when it comes to CBD and THC. And I will say that while maybe the biggest chemical interaction there was CBD, definitely felt like there was some THC. I could be wrong. It was very early in the morning, and I very (laughs) actively drank as much of it as I could. So who knows really what was going on there? But it was very lovely. Thanks for your honesty.
0: And um, I feel like there's still a lot that we can talk about, and I'm sure that we will. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Always a
0: pleasure. Hey, Hey, Agave is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez zazueta and me, Sabrina Lazard. Our music is by Melagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Melagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Salusita.